The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. People often tell me that they'd love to come with us to the Holy Land on one of our prayer tours, but some are afraid or they're discouraged by their families. But these days, dangers and hotspots are erupting everywhere in the world. A person is unfortunately just as likely to be involved in a terrorist incident anywhere you go in the world. The Israelis have been confronting terrorists for decades and are much more savvy. Spiritual warfare is also increasing due to the nature of the end times. So let's keep going with the gospel and not give into fears. Today, we're once again going to take up a topic that we must get a handle on, spiritual warfare in the last days. Shalom, I'm Christine Darick. The great preacher and author A.W. Tozer once said that the devil's master strategy is to destroy our power to wage spiritual warfare. But sadly, the average Christian these days is seemingly harmless to the kingdom of darkness. The average professing believer is like a child wearing a warrior's armor. So let's face it, this world is not a playground. It's a battleground. And Proverbs 24.10 says that if we faint in the day of adversity, our strength is small. That means our faith is small, our moral courage is small if we faint in the day of adversity. But the Bible teaches us to develop a mindset to endure hardness as battle-hardened soldiers of Messiah. So I want to encourage all people of faith to stay in faith in these last days and to keep from fainting. I hope this will help you today to stay strong because the battle is fiercer than it was yesterday. Now is definitely not the time to lose courage or to give up. Increasing spiritual warfare is coming against ministries and individuals. Just recently, a faithful minister of the gospel admonished us to pray more often in the spirit, to fortify ourselves, because the times require it. We must face the fact that spiritual warfare is inevitable. Conflicts just can't be avoided. Every step we take to prepare for the second coming of Jesus will be contested. Yet, the more strenuous the struggle and battle, the more glorious the achievements and victory. God is urging believers to resist responding to events with fear or anger or taking offense or just falling into apathy and giving up. It's going to become increasingly difficult for the Lord's faithful followers to maintain our convictions and at the same time, a positive attitude that influences and genuinely helps people. Well, 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul admonished his spiritual son, Timothy, to wage spiritual warfare, to fight a good fight. And this phrase, fight a good fight, in English is not as precise as the New Testament Greek is. The verb to fight is from a Greek word that gives us the word strategy, 
meaning that we must fight our spiritual battles like a trained soldier with definite strategies and spiritual weapons. And the noun warfare in this verse actually means to wage a campaign or an expedition type of warfare. So this tells us that in this life, we're not involved in a single battle. The journey of a believer is a lifetime, continual campaign of spiritual warfare. And not all battles are fought well or strategically. So we need to train ourselves to think strategically with heaven and its rewards always in mind as our goal. Now, when Paul admonished us to fight a good fight of faith, the commentaries say he was talking about, among other things, a person's character in the midst of our daily battles. The word for good in this verse is rendered elsewhere in the Bible as meaning something beautiful to fight a noble warfare with honorable and worthy character, to be a woman of valor, to be a man of valor. Warfare imagery was often used by the Apostle Paul because he knew that spiritual warfare is unavoidable and common to all believers who have enlisted as volunteers under King Messiah, the captain of our salvation. So having put on the whole armor supplied by God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, this word of God, the belt of truth and the gospel shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, we fight against the world, against the flesh and the devil. And we're more than conquerors, the Bible promises, through him that loved us. The Bible calls it the good fight of faith. You see, faith is always the key, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And so we're expected to endure hardness by faith as good soldiers of the gospel. There's no substitute for daily Bible reading and fellowship with Bible believers. More than ever, we have to double down deliberately to fortify our faith. Paul explained why the last days are so difficult to handle in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But know this, Paul said to his protege Timothy, in the last days, perilous times will come. And one translation calls it grievous times of danger, persecution, and trial. The majority of commentators believe the last day's reference refers to the period of time immediately prior to the Lord's second coming. But others explain that technically the last days refer to the entire gospel dispensation of the past 2,000 years. And we find this idea in rabbinic literature that 6,000 years are mentioned as the duration of the world. 2,000 years of beginnings, 2,000 years under the law, and 2,000 years of church history called the days of Messiah, the days of grace. That's why this last period, the days of Messiah, are often alluded to by the Hebrew prophets as the end of days. The Bible tells us the last days began long ago. Consider, for example, 1 John 2.18, where Apostle John said, Little children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many antichrists have arisen. 
And from this we know that it is the last hour. But God lives outside of time. To him one day is as a thousand years. The last hour began with the first coming of Messiah, and he ushered in the last days. After all, Jesus announced from the cross, it is finished. And what was finished? The work of redemption for all who will believe in the atonement that he secured. On the day Jesus died on the cross, the temple veil was torn, giving direct access to God because Jesus, Yeshua, bore the guilt of the sins of the world. That veil was made of glorious embroidery in purple, blue, and scarlet threads with golden cherubim. The veil was both a parable and a mystery. And the supernatural tearing of that ultra-thick veil from top to bottom at the moment of the death of Jesus dramatically symbolized that his sacrifice, the shedding of his own blood, was sufficient atonement for sin for time and eternity. And the way into the Holy of Holies was made open for all people, for all time, for both Jew and Gentile. Jesus knew it was only a matter of time before the temple would be destroyed. The old order of the sacrificial system was suspended, and the new covenant was begun, the days of Messiah. Paul goes on describing these last days to Timothy. He says, people are going to be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without natural affection, unforgiving, slanderous, brutal, not lovers of the good, but treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He said they will exhibit a form of godliness, but deny its power. In other words, they're going to go through the motions of observing outward shows of belief in God, but in reality, they will renounce the gospel's influence over their lives. They'll mock the doctrine of the second coming, thinking it has nothing to do with reality. And Paul went on to say, admonishing Timothy, you, however, know all of my teaching, my way of life, the sufferings and persecutions I endured, in fact, and here's a key verse that I want to emphasize today. Paul said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Messiah Jesus will suffer persecution, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Amazing. Isn't that an accurate description of our times with all of its con artists? So many Christians are suffering from imposters and deceivers. Somebody contacts me, it seems, every week about another scam that's being promoted throughout the world on the Internet, and many Christians are falling for them. But Paul explains elsewhere in Ephesians 6.12 that our struggles in life are not against flesh and blood, against human beings, but we're actually struggling against demonic rulers the powers, the darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the atmosphere in heavenly places. We're actually having to contend with dark, demonic forces. But we have the name of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. And on the positive side, don't forget, we have these awesome and effective spiritual weapons. 
Paul reminded us that the weapons of our spiritual warfare, the armor of God, this word of God, prayer, fasting, the name of the Lord, these weapons are not physical, but they're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds and fortresses. Because of some of the questions and comments that come to me on the social media or through email, sometimes I'm alarmed at how many believers seem to be ill-equipped for the spiritual warfare of the last days. So many are naive. Others don't have a basic grasp of eschatology. I mentioned that word on Facebook the other day and somebody said, oh, that sounds too theological. But don't let your eyes glaze over at the mention of eschatology. That is simply a word that means the study of the end times. And not enough churches are teaching about the end times. The lack of maturity and the disinterest in biblical eschatology alarms me because people are going to be caught unaware when Jesus returns suddenly. This week, a friend commented on my Facebook wall that she's been a believer since 1974 and that for the first decade or so of her new life with the Lord, she remembered that pastors and teachers taught about the rapture. That's the biblical doctrine about the sudden catching away of believers to heaven in the end times. But now she expressed shock by the number of men and women who in the churches know nothing about the rapture or the end times or about Israel. And the doctrine of the second coming is denied like it will never happen. My friend lamented that all of these things are not discussed in the church like they should be. And that parents don't think that their children need to know about the second coming because it might worry them and they already have too much to think about in this world. She said this cover-up is very disturbing and the enemy just sits back and laughs. I responded by saying that what she described is actually a fulfillment of end time prophecy because the apostle Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 4, predicting people will say in the last days, what happened to the promise of Jesus coming again? Because from the beginning of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. And so they're, they're not expecting his coming. I have to say that Jesus was so accurate when he said the last days would be like the days of Noah. Business as usual, people eating, drinking, marrying, but suddenly the flood came and washed them all away. As Paul said, many believers by now should be teachers of God's word, but instead they're still babies in need of the milk bottle. They're simply unable to digest the meat of God's word. And they're unable to interpret the clear signs of the times outlined in this Bible. But Jesus repeatedly tried to prepare his disciples and to warn us that the last days would be treacherous like the days of Lot, Abraham's nephew, who lived in a very rough neighborhood that was destroyed for its wickedness, Sodom and Gomorrah. Today, due to mass media multiplying and magnifying all manner of sexual sins, our culture is inundated like no other time in history. It seems that we've passed a tipping point in end time prophecy. And while the Lord may mercifully grant us seasons of revival and refreshing and a little more time to repent and 
bring in more souls into the kingdom. Nevertheless, this world is experiencing the birth pains and the footsteps of Messiah's return. One age, the times of the Gentiles, is finishing and a new age is being birthed. And that's the rising again of Israel and the restoration of the divinic kingdom to Israel. You see, unlike what many theologians teach, God is far from finished with Israel. We see in the news Israel every day, and we see many signs of Israel's coming national revival. And why aren't the churches talking about it? But, for example, in the cathedrals of this world, we hear scripture lessons routinely read about Israel and about end-time prophecies as they come up year after year in the lectionaries. But the lessons are read matter-of-factly as if the Bible words have no relevance to today. Bible prophecies about Israel that are being fulfilled before our eyes are read publicly every week in churches, but they don't register on the minds of many of the ministers and the people who are asleep. Yet the prophet Simeon clearly foretold the whole history of Israel in one verse in Luke chapter 2. That was when Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus into the temple in Jerusalem to be dedicated. And the prophet Simeon took the infant into his arms and prophesied that Jesus was destined for the fall of Israel so that the hearts of many men could be revealed. But Simeon's prophecy didn't stop with the fall of Israel. He went on to say that Jesus is the glory of Israel and that he is also set for the rising again of Israel. And it's happening. Israel is arising. And now you and I are privileged to be living in these momentous prophetic days of the rising again of Israel. You see, it was a foregone conclusion among Jesus' disciples that the Davidic kingdom would be restored to Israel. They just miscalculated the timing. After the resurrection of Jesus and just before his ascension into heaven, in Acts 1, 6, the disciples came to him, seeing that he was alive and had triumphed over death. They assumed, they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Would he usher in the messianic kingdom at that time and start to rule Israel and the world from the restored throne of King David? It made sense to them, but Jesus' answer surprised them. Before he restores the kingdom of Israel, first he said, they had a job to do, to preach his gospel of the kingdom for a witness to all nations, and then the end of the age would come. So right now, you and I are living in a transition period from one age to the next, from the times of the Gentiles to the rising again of Israel, immediately prior to the second coming of Jesus and the restoration of the Davidic kingdom during the millennium the thousand years of rule of Jesus on this earth. So these days require a great deal of discernment, prophetic optimism, endurance, and spiritual warfare. We need to understand spiritual warfare and not be taken out prematurely or sidelined by satanic forces due to a lack of wisdom or a lack of understanding of our momentous times. In the Hebrew scriptures in Ezekiel 22, God gave a charge to the watchman the city was full of blood, and our Western nations are full of the blood of aborted infants and 
violent and mass murders defiling our lands. But God instructed the watchmen to reprove the city's inhabitants for all their sins. Sin must be acknowledged and God's people must stand in the gap and repent. We have to remit the sins of our loved ones. According to the gospel in John 20, 23, that verse says, whose sins we forgive or we release or loose and whose sins we retained are retained. So this verse has everything to do with spiritual warfare and releasing souls from bondage through prayer. Not only are our cities full of blood, but the Lord declared, you have forgotten me. God also charged the leaders and prophets with fleecing the sheep and getting rich off of widows. God was indignant in Ezekiel twenty-two thirty. He said, I search for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I wouldn't destroy it. But I found no one. What was the complaint of the Lord? The people of God weren't building up a wall against sins and murders, and they were not standing in the breaches along the walls. The people weren't praying. Truth was falling in the streets. God warned for years and years through watchmen, just as he's being today warning our generation. He's looking for watchmen. And are we listening? I want to inspire you that our Jesus is coming very soon and not as the meek lamb of God this time, but the next time he's coming as the conquering, roaring lion of Judah. He's coming as the captain of the Lord's armies. He will be greater than any military leader this world has ever seen, far greater than General Washington or Wellington, Napoleon, or any of the greats throughout history. So where do you think we are right now on God's timeline? Well, lately I've been speaking on Obadiah 1.15, a tremendous verse that says, the day of the Lord is near for all nations, and as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your head. Also in 1 Peter 4, 7, the apostle said that the end of all things is at hand. The word in in the Greek is telos, meaning consummation. The consummation of the age is at hand. This world is not going to continue indefinitely. So don't worry about climate change and saving the planet. Jesus is coming soon and he will take care of all of those things. The apostle Peter went on to say, beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which comes to try and test you as though something strange is happening unto you. Instead, he said, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Messiah in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Jesus is coming. So I want to encourage you in all the midst of your daily trials that none of us is immune from trials. Satan could not succeed with destroying the faith of Job or Peter or Paul because the Lord himself is able and willing to keep us from falling. So if you are storm tossed today in your many spiritual battles, and I have them too, but I want to give you an amazing word picture to strengthen our faith. 
Remember the temple veil that I mentioned earlier? The writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 6 gives us a wonderful word picture. Verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He became a high priest forever, our high priest. What a word picture. When we trust in the Lord, our Savior, our soul is supernaturally connected, secured to an anchor, as it were, which is a symbol of Jesus himself and his cross, anchored securely inside the Holy of Holies in heaven. It's as if we're connected by an unbreakable cable of faith to the Messiah, right into heaven's Holy of Holies, where he makes constant intercession for us and nothing can ever break that divine connection. And John 1.12 declares, But as many as received him, Jesus, to him he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So I'm wondering today, are you assured of your salvation and are you living for the Lord on a daily basis? Recently, I asked a sales clerk who would help me very nicely if she was a Christian, and she hesitated to answer because she wasn't sure, or I suppose maybe she was a little embarrassed, but she was brought up in a country with a Judeo-Christian heritage, and she didn't really know if she was a believer or not, even though she said she went to church. Well, the gospel does have the power to save you and our loved ones, but the decision is ours. We have to make our salvation sure by making a conscious decision to surrender our life to the Lord. And the Bible teaches that if we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and if we will confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, we shall be saved. There are many people around the world in prisons today because they're Christians and they're being persecuted. But others perhaps were in prison for crimes and they had once made a decision to accept Jesus, but they never lived for him and never became his disciples. Jesus told us solemnly that if we're not willing to forsake everything for him, we cannot be his disciple. So let's get serious with following the Lord. Let's have prayer and daily Bible reading. Dangerous times demand serious discipleship. And if you have any questions about the faith, I invite you to contact me via the social media or our website, exploits.tv, where you can click online to receive our free newsletter, Exploits. The name Exploits comes from Daniel 11.32, which says that the people who know God will be strong, not weak, and will carry out exploits. That means we'll do the works of the Lord. I also invite you to download our free Jerusalem Channel app from your app store. And why not consider coming with us on one of our Holy Land adventure and prayer tours. And so until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Dart. Shalom and Maranatha. Here at the Jerusalem Channel, we work hard to keep you informed and up to date on prophetic end time events in the Holy Land. But we also see so many great humanitarian needs. 
And that's why your support is helping to keep this ministry lifting up the name of the Lord in the Middle East. One of our most recent projects was to donate and dedicate a fully equipped ambulance to Israel's National Volunteer Rescue Service. The ambulance is available to assist everyone, Jews, Muslims, Christians, and yes, even tourists who might need medical assistance. So thanks for being a part of the Jerusalem Channel by your gifts through our website or through our ministry addresses in the USA and the United Kingdom. Please help us to be a blessing to all the people of the Holy Land.